Now, as David reads this out of the book of Acts, see if you might recognize a process by which Saul is called, remembering that this is the one who was really a a bad one for the early church and yet was called out of that to turn a new direction to do some really phenomenal work. See if you see a process in the midst of this. David? Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, Who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they heard the voice but saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. He answered, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this moment, he is praying, and he has seen a vision. A man named Ananias comes in and lays his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief priests to bind all who invoke your name. But the Lord said to him, Go. For he is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went and entered the house. He laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on your way here, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately... Something like scales fell from his eyes, and his sight was restored. Then he got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. This is God's word. A couple of weeks ago, I talked at length, I think, about the the vision of the church. Uh, The document that I was given when I came, assembled by Janet and, and just overwhelmed by what was in there, but what kept overwhelming me, what kept niggling at me was this statement of vision. And a reminder that the statement, a statement of vision is something that is to propel us into the future. It is to be that rubber band that takes where we are in current, in our current reality and moves us dramatically and with strength into the future. For the last four months I've been praying about this and spending time and just looking at it was up at our cabin Uh, last Friday and late Thursday and went through it again 
those five pieces of that vision and what I kept trying to find was how is that influencing what we do today? I'll get to the call in just a minute, but let me go back through this vision because that is going to help us frame where we need to go. In the vision, you talk about gathering all people. And I will now say we talk about gathering all people. My question is, how are we gathering all people? How are we inviting people in? What is the process by which we can bring people in and then engage them in the life of the church? Is there anything in place that moves us from people walking or moves them from walking through the doors to then engaging in deeper in a deeper sense in the life of the church. Then there are these two statements of the fact that we heal and transform them. And I have struggled, I will admit to you, that with that phrase. That somehow we see it that we heal and that we transform, when in fact, isn't it, isn't it our belief in God or the power of the Holy Spirit that heals and transforms? But both of those are integral pieces as people come into the church no matter how long we've been here, we all have places in our lives in need of healing. So what specifically are we doing at Aldersgate that allows people a process toward healing? And then you look at that next word, that third piece, the transformational piece. My question is, how do we sit or where is it that we feel that we need to be transformed? Transformed from what? To what? And do we have a way that allows people to be invited in, offering places specific to healing, an opportunity for folks to be transformed so that through that transformation, they become not just disciples of Jesus Christ, but there is one more word in the midst of that vision. Do you remember what it is? Passionate. I think most people who come into churches have already found some understanding of faith. I mean, that's the norm anymore. We very seldom, particularly in the United Methodist churches, do we get folks coming in who don't have some semblance of understanding of what faith is. I wish we got more that didn't. However, the key word there is how are we creating passionate disciples, passionate followers of Jesus Christ? What is the process by which we are moving or assisting people through that. And then the final fifth piece is then service to the world. And if you look at service to the world, you know what? We're doing a really good job of service to the world. My deeper question is why? What is it about this church that, that makes you feel as though this is an absolute need of serving in the variety of ways that you serve? That is not a question of criticism. That is a question of absolute, uh, overwhelming understanding that at your heart, at your heart is service to the world. The other piece that's been interesting to me, and I share this with a couple of folks, um, particularly I share it with Dorothy, because she asked me the question first. You, you know, pastors get criticized all the time. We do. It, it's just a part of the ballgame. I have never been criticized for this. This is a newbie for me. Not less than seven to ten people have come to me and said, why do you feel like, why do you feel like we need to be bolstered or, or cheerleaded the way that you, you, just keep, you just keep complimenting us? 
Why do you do that? <laughs> All right, that's over. <laughs> it's not over. But it's an interesting thing, and the, the answer to that question that I've said to those of you that have brought that to me is of what I've heard at these, at these house gatherings, of, of these meet and greets. Uh, of there's this, this feeling of longing in the church, a feeling like we, we're just, we feel like we're ready to go, but we're not quite sure where we're going yet, or, 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 or we're missing some pieces, and we really want those pieces. And so me, I, I mean, the way I take that as, okay, I need to get up the pom-poms and put on the little skirt and be the cheerleader. You don't want that. Please. Maybe you want the cheerleading part, you don't want the other part. But, but what's interesting is to hear the pushback of that. And the result of that for me has been, okay, maybe that's true. Maybe it is not about cheerleading or compliments. Maybe what it is is that it's time to challenge you. And that's why I bring these five elements. At ALC on Tuesday night, I'm going to bring a model that moves us through those five elements. And it's, it's a very simple model. It's going to expand leadership, but what it's going to mean, what it's going to mean is that the 10 to 15% of the church who is doing most of the work, the other 85% or 90% who are not at this point, here's the deal, friends. You're going to get opportunities. My hope out of this is to have another ministry fair in January. This time with this expanded model that centers on God and moves people through this process of discipleship. And again, the, the, the last part of that is sending, going into the world for the work that needs to be done there. Inviting, welcoming, healing, transformation, passionate discipleship, sending forth. Do you see the cyclical process that is? But what that means is that we all need to have some sense of calling. Because if we don't have a sense of calling, we won't know where to plug in. And what I find amazing about this story of Saul is that there is, I mean, how could you avoid a sense of calling when you're knocked off your horse by, you know, <clears throat> what looks like lightning? For some of us, that's what it takes. But what we find there is an incredible process that we can, we can implement in our own lives that helps us understand where we might be called personally into the life and ministry of the church. The reason that we are going to be at the altar rails today, and that doesn't mean you need to kneel, but at least to approach, is because a part of that process that brought Saul into this new enlightenment of what he was to do was going to the ground. But look at this story. It's an amazing story. Let me run through these fairly quickly. What I found were 12 pieces of this. And I, again, I'm going to just mention these. First, if you notice, as Saul is going one direction, he has stopped. In a somewhat dramatic way, he has stopped by a power greater than anything he has ever sensed, including Rome. Something stops him, and it is a power that is immense. And he realizes suddenly that he is going the wrong direction. Second, there was a light that came to him. If you have your scriptures, open them up and look at this process. A light that shines that is blinding to him. And so, in the midst of that light, what he finds is a new direction, or if to use the term, enlightenment. Third, 
somehow it's appropriate that it was third in this. Third is always a holy number. It means heavenly. Third, he is knocked to the ground. And how little we go to the ground anymore. How little we come and kneel and pray anymore to ask God's direction. And I will tell you what I keep hearing, not necessarily here, but throughout, particularly mainline denominations, is we don't pray. We don't need to pray anymore. We don't need to open our meetings in prayer. We don't need to be covered in prayer because God is already here. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Dramatic point. We need to pray. We need to go to the ground constantly. We need to pray. Fourth, it's only when we go to the ground that we, are hear, we hear the question clearly. Whatever that question may be or that direction that God is trying to get to us will not happen in our busy schedules until we stop. Go to the ground and listen. Fifth, notice that the message was now today. This is what I need you to do today. Sixth and seventh. It's not only today. There is a clarity about it. Number six, there was an absolute clarity about it. There was no confusion. This was not muddled. It was absolutely crystal clear what God was calling Saul to do. Seventh, the other thing he said is go and stop. Once you get where I'm telling you to go, then I need you to stop. Stop. This needed to be the seventh item because, as my class knows, seventh, the word, the number seven in Scripture is always about where holy or heavenly, number three, meets earthly, which is represented by the number four, and when those two are added together, you get seven. It is a holy number because of that. Seven always means a place where heaven meets earth. Very mystical number in scripture. Eight. In that holy time of waiting, you will be reborn, reignited, redefined, re-energized, refocused, re-something. Are you willing to do that? Ninth. Sometimes it means we stop doing other things and replace those other things with listening. If you notice that the The writer, Luke, said he didn't eat for three days. Holy number, a time of fasting, and a time of listening to God. And it wasn't until then that he was able to see. Tenth, what will often happen when we're looking for call is that it will involve other people who will add clarity and confirmation to the previous things that we've done. Shannon and I will both tell you, as as we come through ordination, as ordained ministry, the first thing that we are asked about is who supports or recognizes this call in you. It's never just about us, ever. It is always about the community that has watched us grow or seen us move toward answering this call. If you want to know what your call may be in this church, maybe you need to ask those closest to you because sometimes they recognize it before you do. Eleventh, risk. Ananias, as he was responding to God in this call to go be with Saul, knew that it was risky. I got to tell you, answering God's call is always risky, and that's why I was intrigued by Linda, your comment about going to be a mission in Africa. That's always the fear. 
that if I really listen to God, then what if God says, go to Africa? Well, you know what? Then go to Africa. The call of God is powerful. And God has something in mind for each of us. And then 12, the key piece there is then taking the action necessary to answer the call. So friends, what is your call? And it has so much more to do with what you thought you might be when you grew up. Every single one of you, every single one of you is called. Every one of you. What makes a church powerful has nothing to do with numbers, nothing to do with church growth, nothing to do with any of those things. What makes a church powerful is when they recognize their need for God and recognize their need to answer a call that is coming specifically to them and then engaging that call in the life of the church and in the life of the community. So what is your call? So here's what I'm asking you to do. We have two months until January. I'm asking you to go to the ground. I'm asking you to stop for a little while. And if you don't already know the answer to this question, go to the ground, go through that process and pray. And open yourselves to the leading of the Holy Spirit. And when you come forward even to start it, Maybe today, if you haven't already done this, start it right here at these rails. And as you come for communion and receive communion, ask that question. Lord, what do you need from me today? Even if you have done enormous work in the church, ask God if that's where God needs you to be. This is the Sabbath. Well, this is the Lord's Day. Where it's going to be Sabbath is when we come to the altar rails for communion. A Sabbath moment of stopping, of being in awe of this God of creation. Stop, look, and sorry, what's the third piece? Come on, you were in kindergarten. (laughs) Stop, look, and... Stop, look, and listen. Stop. Allow the scales to fall from our eyes. And listen. The most powerful force in the universe who has chosen you. Every one of you. For something. Will you pray with me? God of all creation, as we now begin to move toward communion. In a moment, we'll offer our gifts to you for the work of the church and the work that we do in the community. And then we move into communion. And at that point, we offer ourselves to you. Guide us clearly in this time as we not only look where we are today but also at where we're headed and let us allow that vision that was placed in the heart of this congregation all those many years ago continue to propel us into the future 
but help us each identify one of those places where we're being called to serve. Guide us as your people. All this we ask in the powerful name of the one we seek to follow, Jesus Christ.